Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, we take a deep dive into the Texas wine industry. I review Texas wine news and bring you the interviews, education, and information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thank you for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 13. Today I'm looking at what happens in the vineyard when the weather turns cold, how cold is too cold in Texas, and what are grape growers to do. My guest is Daniel Pate of Apical, Texas, and he helps me understand cold weather viticulture. Finally, I'm drinking the 2018 Dead Flowers Rosé from the Texas High Plains. But first, let's take a look at the Texas wine news. My guest on the last podcast was Jessica Dufuy, and she just published a new article on TexasMonthly.com. It's called Five Things You Didn't Know About Texas Wine, although if you're a regular listener of this podcast, I bet you might know these five things. They are, number one, the panhandle, not the hill country, is home to more than two-thirds of the grapes grown in Texas. Number two, the southwest, including present-day Texas, was the first region in the country to have significant plantings of European grape varieties, or Vitis vinifera, predating California by more than 100 years. Number three, before European varieties were planted in Texas, a handful of native grape varieties were already flourishing here, and they remain a few of our star performers. She specifically mentions Black Spanish and Blanc de Bois. Number four, the southwest Texas town of Del Rio is home to the oldest winery in the state. That winery, of course, is Valverde Winery. And number five, Texas saved French and European wine with native rootstock. That's thanks to T.V. Munson, the Denison-based grape horticulturalist that assisted the French when phylloxera ravaged the vineyards in the late 1880s. That article was promoting Jessica's new book that she discussed in our last episode. Another recent article about Jessica's book caught my attention, and it was published on a U.K.-based website. The interviewer asked Jessica to name the top 10 best producers from the Southwest. That includes all four states that Jessica wrote about. From Texas, she mentioned William Chris Vineyards, McPherson Cellars, and Pedernales Cellars. Forbes.com continues to showcase Texas wine stories. Claudia Alarcon spotlights Cabernet Grill, the Fredericksburg restaurant with a 100% Texas wine list. The restaurant opened in 2002 and features 160 Texas wines and more than 20 Texas wines by the glass. It's been recognized by wine enthusiasts as a best wine restaurant more than once over the past couple of years. Elizabeth Rodriguez is the general manager and the wine director there. Well, Lubbock residents are in luck, HEB opened the first store in Lubbock on October the 28th. And don't you know it'll have a great Texas wine selection, or it better. Kim McPherson was on hand to sign bottles on opening day. There's reportedly a wine-tasting kiosk, and I would love to see what that looks like. So if you have photos of the HEB wine kiosk in Lubbock, please send them to me. And here's another exciting Lubbock story. There's a new high-end destination restaurant coming to Lubbock this fall. And unlike the restaurant I mentioned in my last podcast, this one is making a real effort to put Texas wine on the wine list. The Nicolette will feature regional cuisine. Texas chef Finn Walter has worked at Meadowood Napa, and is best known for his work at Austin's Olivia and Metal. Kim McPherson has been tapped to craft the restaurant's custom-labeled house wines. And the rest of the wine list will also have a heavy emphasis on Texas winemakers. 
Thanks to one of my regular listeners, Johnny Wine, for sharing this bit of Texas wine news with me. The Houston Chronicle and HEB are offering a virtual wine tasting on November the 19th. It's the Spirit of Texas event to celebrate the 175th anniversary of Texas. A beer tasting took place in October. The event is free, and you can sign up and purchase some of the selected wines that are available at HEB. You'll be guided through the tasting by Emma Balter, the Houston Chronicle's wine and beer expert. Find the sign-up for the event in the show notes. In the last podcast, I shared a bunch of double gold medal winners from the 12th annual San Antonio Stock Show and Rodeo Wine Competition. That competition featured more than 1,000 wines from across the U.S. and the world. Bending Branch Winery won Best of Heard Texas Winery. That goes out to the Texas winery that has the greatest percentage of wines receiving the highest number of awards. Congratulations to Bending Branch. A recent investigative report by the New York Times exposed a long list of sexual abuse allegations by members of the Court of Master Sommeliers. 21 women in the wine industry, including many from Texas, told the paper that they were sexually harassed, manipulated, or assaulted by male master sommeliers. The reporting is thorough and disturbing. Seven accused members have now been suspended by the Court of Master Sommeliers, and one has resigned. There are 27 female master sommeliers, and they've issued a letter to the court asking for the removal of the board of directors and outlining additional steps to rebuild the court. But some of the women who were quoted in the New York Times story are calling for the court to be disbanded, not rebuilt. There's been some super creepy, criminal, Harvey Weinstein-type behavior happening in the wine world for years, and now that it's out in the open, no one is quite sure what's to come next. It's a very contentious time. The Houston Chronicle will be publishing an article about this crisis on Thursday, the day that this podcast drops. It was distressing to see so many Texas names and faces in that New York Times article. Time's up for this nonsense. Here's to weeding out the bad guys and creating a wine industry that's a safe place for everyone. On a lighter note, D Magazine has created a fun quiz that asks, what kind of Texas Hill Country wine are you? Answer a few fun questions about your favorite fruit, scent, and place to drink wine, and the quiz gives you a wine recommendation. Me, I'm a Cunois. My wine recommendation from French Connection Wines happens to be one of my very favorite Texas wines. Nailed it. I'll link to the quiz and all of these Texas wine stories in the show notes. Remember, you can find those at www.thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. Did you know that it's possible to buy me a glass of Texas wine or two? Details are on my website at www.thisistexaswine.com. Click on the Support the Podcast tab. I have a fun new giveaway that I'm sending out to people that sign up for my monthly email newsletter. It's a Texas wine quiz, and it also has the answers so that you can check yourself. In just 10 questions, you can identify if you're a Texas wine expert and ready to go to work in a winery tasting room. Sign up for the newsletter on the website. You'll see the button for newsletter sign-up. Again, that's www.thisistexaswine.com. My guest today is Daniel Pate. His company, Eightbuckle Texas, provides vineyard management services and consulting to Texas vineyards, mostly in the High Plains. I started following Daniel's Instagram account, 
which is Apical, Texas, by the way. That's like typical, but with just an A, A-P-I-C-A-L, Texas. And I've really been impressed with the educational videos he provides. He posts short videos that explain what's going on in the vineyards. He shows grapevines that have different nutritional deficits, problems with irrigations. He talks about pruning and so much more. I thought it would be interesting to talk to Daniel about the cold weather that has already made an appearance in Texas. I wanted to know how grape growers can prepare and what specifically is going on with the grapevine. Now, here's my interview with Daniel I read Pate. that you grew up in San Antonio and went to Texas Tech, but then started your professional career in California. So tell me a little bit about your professional career in um, vineyard consulting and vineyard management. Yeah, I will. Um, I got into this business pretty much on accident while I was at Tech. Um, through my bachelor's, I had a professor ask me, hey, I've got a great project. And I was in ag and applied economics. So it's a lot of, you know, farming. So I was like, well, it's not corn. It's not cows. It's not cotton. Sure, I'll try it. <laughs> right? Sure. Why not? Because I don't really want to do any of those things. Um, and just really fell in love with it. And I just kind of got it started to get into it. Um, but I graduated with my bachelor's in May of 2009, like literally into the heart of the recession. And the only place that I could get a job was with Archer Daniel Midland up in Minot, North Dakota. That was the only single job offer I had. And I don't know, it was like 32 grand. <laughs> I was like, okay, what are we going to do? I was like, that's not an option. My wife's not following me there. My, <laughs> she was my girlfriend at the time. I was like, this is a problem. So, you know, I scrambled and I was like, all right, well, this great thing is pretty cool. Maybe I should devote some more energy to that. Um, so I decided to go back and get my master's. And through that process, got a lot more involved, you know, in the grape industry and understanding that, you know, and, and kind of try to have a platform to go to. And so it helped. It bought me two years, you know, and um, I got really just the opportunity of a lifetime um, to go straight out to Sonoma County and be a grow relations rep there at E&J Gallo. So, yeah, so it's pretty cool. It was <laughs> a little hairy. I tend to start things you know, during disaster events and tend to just have poor luck, but you, know, you push through and it is what it is. So it's always kind of fun. And you were out there during some of the more recent fires, I guess. Yes. Yes. We went through the 2014 earthquake. Uh, we went through the 2017 fires, about half our neighbors burned because we lived uh, right off of Soda Canyon, just Oof. across from Black Stallion. And yeah, that That's was tough. Yeah. It was a pretty tough moment. You know, I mean, we were able to save our place, you know, and basically fought the fire night all night. And then when we ran out of power, my wife and I were like, all right, well, there's the pool. Here's some five gallon buckets. So <laughs> you just make it work. Um, but it was, it was kind of the impetus for, for wanting to come back. It was, it's really challenging and it's a super complicated problem that they've got there in Napa and Sonoma, and it's going to take them a while to solve through it. And, you know, I don't think there's anybody in particular to blame. I think it's just challenging. And I didn't really want to go through that again. And my wife and I were kind of looking at how the Texas industry had changed since, you know, when I left in 2011, you know, it was, it was good, but there was just not near the opportunities, not the young people, um, not the excitement uh, level that we saw, you know, in 17 and 18 and really stuff just started to get exciting. So it seemed like a good transition. So what, what was the first thing that you did when you got back to Texas? 
So the first thing I did was just go wander around vineyards. No joke. Yeah. I mean, I had no clients, um, you know, so I kind of tried to sort of build those relationships. I knew a number of people when I was here and it kind of had some of those connections. Um, so a lot of it was just exploring vineyards and I wanted to take the time for myself. A lot of what I learned applies you know, out here and in California simultaneously, but some of it I had to throw out. And so I just wanted to kind of take my time and say, Hey, what do I need to unlearn? Right. You know, what's, what, what do I have to toss out the window that doesn't apply so that I can kind of reset. So that was a lot of it was just spending time in the vineyard and listening to the vines. No joke. So we have a different climate and, um, uh... I'm sure different disease pressures and all kinds of differences, but what are the things that are the most similar that, that absolutely relate compared to California? I think a lot of it is nutritional. A lot of it is vine balance, irrigation, um, planting density, you know, paying attention to your soils, um, having a balanced vine, canopy management. You know, there's there's a bunch of immutable laws, right, of biology. And just like if you were a lawyer, you know, it's, you could go from Texas to New York. And, yeah, the penal code's probably a little bit different, but you can still practice law. Uh, there's just some different nuances. Um, so there's actually a lot. You know, I think – you start to see some people out here in the high plains that have done some cover cropping that's becoming more popular. You know, a lot of people in the hill country do that. So there's a lot of carryover, you know, and most of it just has to do with how the vine functions, how they perform, how we manipulate that vine to do what we want it to do. Um, and those types of things. So at some point you started your company, Apical Texas, mm -hmm. and you're providing vineyard consulting and management. Is that strictly in the high plains? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I dabble a little bit in the hill country, um, but as you know, you know, most of the acres are out here. Um, you know, I've, I've operated really big, you know, vineyards and really big businesses out in California. And so while I love the hill country, it's fantastic. It's just tough because it's still kind of in this really just this very, you know, primordial stage almost, uh, to some degree and it's coming up. Um, uh, but it's really tough because everything's so spread out. Whereas here in the high plains, you know, we've got stuff pretty centrally located and a good number of acres uh, and a good number of people that are involved. So yeah, we focus here on the high plains. And yeah, originally, you know, it was more of consulting stuff so that I could get my sea legs, um, you know, start to help people out and do just like anybody would starting a business is go find your customers. What is it that they need? What is it that they need help with and try and build a business around that? Um, you know, and so we still do the consulting um, as well as the management. And, you know, it's kind of a it's an option to where people can get some coaching or we can do a lot of the stuff for them. That's great. Well, I know last year in 2019, we had a major cold weather event in the High Plains where we had a, a deep freeze and a lot of the vines suffered pretty tremendously and dramatically. And it really impacted our 2020 vintage. And we've just passed Halloween. And once again, we got really cold the week before Halloween. So I thought it would be interesting for our listeners to understand some about cold weather viticulture. So can you walk me through kind of what's going on right now in the vineyard and then talk some about freezes in particular? Yeah. So, you know, if we look at Texas, right, Texas is a big state. So um, let me give you some context. Like, I think the Russian River AVA itself is like 180,000 ground acres. 
whereas I've, Hill, I think the Hill Country AVA is nine million, and Texas High Plains is like eight and a half million. So it's like yeah. both of those are fifty times the size of the Russian River AVA. So they're absolutely enormous, and there's definitely some differences. I think the High Plains really is cold climate. I know we don't think that sometimes as humans, but from a plant's it is it's it's semi-arid cold you know and so we get these cold events some of the northern regions of the hill country get some of that you know you get up towards comanche um you know you get over to san saba but you get you know closer to i-35 or the i-10 corridor and i-35 corridor you know and that's that's probably a lot more like california but up here in the high plains our best climate analog is eastern washington so last week you know we had temperatures between 20, 21, 22, 23 out here on the high plains. Um, but during that same front that blew through, I mean, Eastern Washington was down in the teens. So they're facing a lot of that too. They're probably our best up here on the high plains, our best climate analog. They're also cold, semi-arid, and especially up there in British Columbia and the Okanagan and Osoyos, um, very, very similar cold temperatures and cold events that occur. And so we just kind of got to work through that because the vine is it's basically this energy machine throughout the season you know it's taking stuff from the soil taking stuff from the water taking stuff from the environment and either putting that into green tissue or putting that into fruit you know it's almost kind of like this fountain of energy but as we go into winter it goes into a storage mode right it's a perennial crop so it flips and it says okay i need to store some carbohydrates i need to store this i need to store that and so it starts to become the storage mechanism. And when we have those really early colds, that's where stuff becomes, you know, more of a challenge, mm-hmm. um, more of a breakdown at that point. Because if you have too drastic of a variation, um, that can be where it's really difficult. For the cold, right, it goes into this storage mode and it says, I need these carbohydrates. I need to go into dormancy and I need to protect myself during that. Um, and to keep it pretty simple, you know, every vine, every position, they've got these compound buds, which is the fruit for next year. So, you know, during this season, we made the tissue and fruit for next season, effectively. And as it goes into dormancy, uh, the vines are just so amazing. They basically take these nucleotides, which are like antifreeze, and impart that into these little buds. And then they seal it off between the rest of the vine through that dormancy um, transition. And so these buds are basically disconnected from the vine, you know, in a tissue manner. It's just got this little thin layer there. And then in the spring, when things start to activate again, it reconnects. Um, And so it's pretty just this amazing thing. And so I think that's what we're really trying to understand. What happened last year and what happens when those freezes occur is, you know, did was it at the wrong time are we lacking some nutrient component um you know i think we're still working through that and as you can see and you well point out you know it happened again this year and you know my argument's been i think it's happened a lot more than we think it has i think a lot of us are still new and experimenting with varieties and it's just happened pretty commonly i think we're just really starting to understand it well and have the tools to to push against it. Interesting. Well, a few of my questions, it may be that you're still evaluating and some of them are um, what vines are most at risk, young or old? Uh, I would argue old, actually. Um, That seems counterintuitive, but 
one of the things that I've had success with and that's antithetical to some of the things we've been um, doing is we tend to lack potassium in our vines as they get older, right? You can kind of think of the soil as a, you can think of the soil as a, as a mine with a fixed amount of resources. And when we start to deplete that, we either have to replace it or we kind of run lean, right? And so as they age, you know, the vine is consuming more potassium than any other single nutrient than, you know, during a season. And we had a really good sized crop, you know, a healthy, generous crop in 2019. And personally, I think we just weren't putting back enough of our nutrition. And I think we just kind of redlined at the end of last season. And I think we interrupted that process, you know, where it goes into dormancy in a happy way and it can lignify and it can do all those other things. So we just kind of wind up with a, a perfect storm of, of difficulty. Yeah. And is it that certain varieties are more susceptible to this or is it just that they're in different cycles based on when they um, shut down or bud break, depending on where they are in their life cycle? Uh, it's both, actually. So, you know, you'll have some varieties that, you know, what what you would say is so the general rule of thumb was, oh, well, you know, if it's an early harvesting variety like a white variety like a viognier then it probably went to bed early and it was fine right Uh, and that wasn't the case like viognier really didn't do well it didn't fruit hardly any this season um and that seems that's kind of against what the textbook says but a lot of times the textbook is just really general guidelines so you've got some varieties that you know are just at different stages whether that's bud break or whether that's fruiting or whether that's entering dormancy, they're just at different stages. And then you also have to layer on, you know, we've planted 50 to 60 varieties out here, which is absolutely awesome. But some of these, they may be from the coast of Italy where it doesn't get below 25. Yeah. <laughs> if that's the case, like they're probably not going to like the high plains. Is there a magic temperature that when you get below, you just are really in trouble? <sighs> Uh, it's really varietal dependent, um, variety dependent. So I would say, you know, once we enter into dormancy, so you can think of it like, and this may sound weird, but like hibernation, you know, for an animal, I mean, once they're in some deep sleep, like you can get pretty low temperatures. I mean, Michigan has vines, New York has vines, you know, and as long as they don't have like a polar vortex, they're pretty good. So vines can get down into the single digit temperatures, even sometimes the negatives. And most vinifera species can handle, you know, 10, 15 degree temperatures during full dormancy when they're fully asleep. Um, but when they're not, I think that's what we're trying to figure out a little bit is which one is more cold resistant like to the early cold because that's really probably more our problem i mean you know i went to school out here for a long time and we'll get down in the single digits from time to time but not like michigan right it's not some polar vortex and they're like oh it's negative 30 we don't really have that problem right um we just tend to have early cold like sometimes around halloween sometimes around the first of november that probably just comes sooner you know, then then maybe our vines are quite ready for. I think the absolute temperatures we can tend to handle. Now, you know, that's a general, broad general rule of thumb. Can you tell the listeners when when you know cold temperatures are coming, some of the ways that grape growers respond to keep the vineyards warm, warmer? Yeah. So in the winter, it's tough. Um, and one of the things, so, you know, you talk about differences from California to here, you know, I mean, the West Coast is a lot of valleys, 
and it's a lot of uh, different basically different weather dynamics. So they can use these frost fans or they can use these sprinklers or they can use these, um, you know, heat sinks and all, all these different things. Some of that stuff we can't use. Um, for example, if we get a cold front, like the frost fans that a lot of California uses because the cold sinks in the valley and then you can move it around and they have what's called an inversion layer. There's basically hot air on top of the cold air. You just got to move it around. Like they don't work over, 10 miles an hour <laughs> they're not built to to do that when there's over 10 mile an hour wind speed and a lot of times we've got 15 or 20 mile an hour wind speed so we can't even turn them on if we wanted to um, just because they don't function now you know i think we still have to do some of the work of I don't, maybe we need a different frost fan you know maybe we need a different design or something like that um, but yeah we don't have access to some of those things so we're gonna have to come up with a better mousetrap i know a lot of people have you know played around with either using some heating systems um, or some modified heating systems to kind of try and warm stuff up um, but i think you know that's still an in progress thing that we'll have to work with so a lot of what we're doing right now is making sure that hey our vines have really good nutrition, right? In the case that weather doesn't go our way, that they're happy, they're healthy, you know, and they're thriving. Um, and then secondarily is doing things like making sure that we've got moisture in the soil. That helps keep the temperatures up. Um, I mean, it's not like we got to go out and flood them, you know, but we want to make sure that there's water in the soil and moisture in the soil so that you know, we can kind of keep those temperatures up. So those are some of the things that we're doing. But, you know, to be quite honest, we're still... It is still a work in progress. Mm -hmm. You're not out there burning hay bales? Uh, you know, some people do. I'm not particularly a fan of it just because I think we haven't come across the right thing. I mean, we used to use these smudge pots in California, like in some of the valleys where we couldn't fit a frost fan or whatever it is. But we put them down like every second, third row. Like you really have to heat the inside of the block. Um, and so I see some of the stuff that we've been doing, you know, and I know some of the guys like Andy Timmons and Jet Wilmoth, they've tried to use those hay bales along with helicopters to effectively create an inversion layer to sort of create some warmth and then circle that around. Um, and I think it's worked for them in some cases and, and some other cases it hasn't. So I think we just kind of have to look at that. There may be better alternatives. Maybe our better alternative is to take all those hay bales and make them small and spread them out throughout the inside of the vineyard. That's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Farmers don't get much <laughs> sleep this time of year, I'm guessing, no, when, when cold weather's coming. I was going to say, outside of the cold weather events, what varieties are easiest for you in Texas and what are some of the most challenging? Uh, so far, I think, you know, you've got really two factors. I, I think the cold is our limiting factor. So the cold varieties have tended to do very well through the winter and they're designed like that. They basically have, um, they've got extra bullets as it were, right? They've got backup plans. And so you see, you see things like, uh, you know, Pinot Noir, Riesling, Picpoul Blanc, Gruner, Teraldigo. Uh, those have done really well. Merlot's done really well. Um, so there's a lot of things that have done well. We've struggled with some of the more hot climate varieties. Um, Alianico has done okay, but it's been difficult for us. Uh, Morvedra looked really good um, kind of going into last winter, but, you know, it didn't go so well through this last winter, and we're really going to have to reevaluate that. Um, and then you've got varieties like Sangiovese, Tempranillo, Cabernet that, 
I don't know. You'd see some places where it did okay and some places that it didn't. And I think we're going to have to track down like the underlying cause of that. Was it the variety itself or not? Because, you know, not to get too much in the weeds, but you've got clones, then you've got rootstocks, and you start to mix all that stuff and you wind up with a lot of genetic variation. How they mix and match. Well, I've learned a lot um, following your Instagram and watching your posts and your videos. And I, I learned what crown gall was and that there's a difficulty between a certain root stock and a certain um, vine. And now I don't recall it off the top of my head, but I didn't know what any of that meant until recently. I'm very impressed with the way you're using social media, even for a non viticulture person like me. I'm interested, but not really trained in this regard. But one of the things that has impressed me in the things that you've written about and spoken about is the way that you share your personal stories and frankly, ways that you have messed up and that you don't want people to make the same mistakes. So I think that's a bold way to teach lessons and, and I like it. I look, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that that impacts people. Um, you know, it's just my personal DNA. I think, I think if we were in a mature market, you know, I mean, California's got seven hundred thousand acres, right? And Washington has sixty thousand acres. So Washington, ten times the size we are, and California is a hundred times the size we are. I think we're just barely scratching the surface of what's possible here. So. I could take the approach and I could say, you know what, man, I'm going to take all these secrets I learned, right? I learned all this stuff and I'm just going to hide it. Or I could try and share that with people so that we can all kind of improve and really build something impressive and awesome here. I think Texas is unique. We've got incredible consumers that really love our products. And we are growing grapes from vineyards the world's never seen before and producing wines that consumers have never tasted before. We're literally never making the same wine twice. It's just, it's amazing. And I think, I think we just are just scratching the surface of what's possible here. And we've had a lot of work put in by pioneers like Neil Newsom and Larry Young, Jet Wilmoth, all those guys that, man, the fortitude they had to <laughs> plant vines out here. You know, it's awesome that I can come in and, and build off what they've done. And I really hope that somebody comes in and builds off what I do. So we try and be open with that and we try and bring in as many people as possible and try and help understand some of that stuff, you know, and, and maybe shed that light. Right. Because I think that's what I don't know. It's at least what I want. And I think a lot of people want is to understand a little bit more. And, you know, you don't have to teach everybody everything, um, but to try and understand you know, and, and share some of the process. And I think it's what makes Texas unique. Like, you know, California's a mature market, Oregon's a mature market. Like that was all pre-internet. So they did all this stuff. We're like, we're figuring out on all the fly, you know, we're, we're, we have problems and then we have to solve them. We're just doing it in the internet world rather than the pre-internet world. They did all this stuff in the seventies and eighties. There's so many acres that have been ripped out in California. It's not even funny because it had, you know, phylloxera or red blotch or whatever it is. We're just doing that in a public way. And so, you know, we try and lean into that and hopefully it makes an impact to people. You know, hopefully we're able to get some more people engaged because, you know, I watch people like yourself come in and really put spotlights and try and connect those dots and bring in new consumers and bring in people that maybe are interested in the industry. And I think it's just all exciting stuff because we are just getting started. Well, I know that you've helped a lot of people and I have one last question for you, which is that I would love to know 
what is the most meaningful part of your work so far? What are, what has been one of your greatest successes since you've started working with the Texas wine industry again? Man, that is a good question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough one, right? It's a very tough one. I, I think hopefully it's it's trying to understand and and hopefully shine a light on some of these people. I, I've been a lot of places in this in this country in a lot of different grape growing regions and the farmers out here, the guys that are doing wine growing, the guys like Neil Newsom, I mean, they they have been fighting against mother nature, the Holy spirit and all sorts of other things, you know, to, to make this work. And it's been incredible. And so to hopefully help move that ball, just one more yard down the field, you know, and bring in somebody new and bring in some perspectives. Hopefully that's what I've done. You know, I'm not sure if I've done it yet or not, or, who knows, maybe we'll figure out 20 years from now, but hopefully just move everything forward and, and get people excited because it's it's incredible, I think, when we look back in 10 years of, of what's possible here. And, you know, the people out here in the High Plains and the people in the Hill Country, but specifically the growers in the High Plains, man, they got some fortitude. And, you know, I know people bet against them a lot, but that is a that is a losing bet and one that I'm not committed to make, you know, and, and one of the reasons why I staked my flag out here you know, to try and be a part of that because they're incredible. So hopefully I've moved the ball down the field one more yard. I think so. I think they're made of some tough stuff and I'm glad you're here. Yeah. So I have to ask, I hear that it takes a lot of beer to make good wine and I'm guessing that it takes a lot of beer to grow good wine grapes, but are you a beer drinker, a wine drinker or all the above? Do you enjoy wine, Texas wine? I do. I'm all the above. I'm, uh, I'm one of those who enjoys a little bit of everything. Good answer. Good answer. Well, I appreciate your time today, and I look forward to meeting you in person one of these days. For sure. For sure. Thank you, Daniel, for your insight on Texas viticulture and the Texas wine industry. Y'all be sure to follow Apical Texas on Instagram for some great posts and videos. I'll also post a link to a profile of Daniel that appeared on Texas Wine Lover. Today I'm drinking the 2018 Dead Flowers Rosé from the Texas High Plains. This is produced and bottled by Texoir, which is a variation of the word terroir. This wine is 94% Morvedra with Grenache and Cinso. It costs $15, and there are 1,200 cases produced. The back of the bottle says, Bone Dry, Beautiful, and Texan. Bo Salling is the interesting guy behind this wine. He's also a musician. He started working at a winery in college, and then he worked in distribution and sales. He started making dry rosé in 2012, and he made just 100 cases of dry rosé. Now he also makes a few other varieties, like Carignan, which is supposed to be phenomenal. He likes the Southern Rhone varieties that he says thrive here in Texas. But this rosé is Provence-inspired. It is totally dry, And apparently he's coming out with a sparkling rosé that is supposed to be released before too long, and I can't wait to try that one. Although this rosé is Provence-inspired, it's got just a lot of fruit, cherry and strawberry. Sometimes Morved can be kind of earthy and brooding, but in this rosé, it's really bright and lively. I poured this wine for a Zoom tasting event that I did, and it was really a hit. And then I was pleased to see that it was part of the Central Market promotion that was done for Texas Wine Month. 
And of course, it was a great price at $15. You may have also seen a couple of the other labels by Texoir. One is called Texoir, and another is Come and Drink It. It's a series of wines that's in one liter bottles. And another that I bought during that Central Market promotion I haven't tried yet, and it's called Boku, C-O-U-P. And it's in a very dramatic burgundy bottle, and I believe it's a red blend. So I'm pleased to be drinking the Dead Flowers Rosé. And I may, I may save a bottle of this for my Thanksgiving table. I'm a fan of rosé at Thanksgiving. The wine also is really lush, and um, I would say it's got a medium body. It's not super light like some Provence rosés, so it's got a little bit more going on for it. Um, Beau calls it dense on the tasting notes. I think it's lovely. It's 13.3% alcohol by volume. It's a great rosé. If you're able to find it, check it out, and I'll also link to their website. Please go to www.thisistexaswine.com for full show notes for this episode. There are links to everything I talked about today. While you're there, click newsletter sign up to subscribe to my monthly email newsletter. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and rate and review it too. That helps other people find the podcast. And please tell your friends to listen. Most people find out about podcasts through word of mouth. So share on your social media. My next podcast episode will be out in about two weeks. Email me at any time with feedback or questions. Who would you like to see on the show? My email is texaswinepod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast at Texas Wine Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Did you know that the Texas Wine Lover website will be 10 years old next year? It's the best place to visit whenever you have a question about a Texas winery or Texas vineyard. That's TXWineLover.com. Thanks, Jeff Cope, for helping promote this podcast and the Texas wine industry. And if you're on Facebook, join the Texas Wine Lover Facebook group, too. Thank you for listening to this episode of This is Texas Wine. Cheers, y'all.